Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of England, episode 182, Games and Beasts, where I am sad to announce that I appear to have completely lost the plot. The plot being the History of England, you know, remember that? Which now seems an awfully long way away, what with all this economic and social stuff. And to make it worse, I have yet another episode that keeps us away from Edward IV, Richard of Gloucester, Henry Tudor because I mentioned in a couple of episodes that I hadn't managed to cover livestock and games, and so I started to write up a couple of little segments just to spice up a political episode somewhere. And unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on your viewpoint, ended up with this, a complete episode on the two topics. So I formally apologise. Before I start, let me remind you that I'm a proud member of the Agora Podcast Network, a group of independent-minded folk who like a bit of a cast now and again. You can find out more at agorapodcastnetwork.com. So, every so often, the gentry would presumably let down their collective hair, put aside the book of hours, and have some fun. Now, it's always seemed to me that without Wi-Fi, life can surely hardly be worth living. I mean, what on earth did they do before Wi-Fi? There's a lovely bit in the dramatisation of Pride and Predge on the Beeb ages ago, and they're all sitting around grandly in the evening, looking bored. And so Caroline Bingley asked Mr Darcy to take a turn round the room, on the grounds that it would be most diverting. I mean, by the stage you walk round your living room to spice up your life, you've got to be desperate, haven't you? So, how did folks in the Middle Ages have a good time? For Kiddiewinks, play and games was seen very much as a natural part of what I think one of my daughters would call the gender binary. There was no messing about here with what kind of pursuits boys and girls should pursue. 
boys were provided with mass-produced metal soldiers and whipping tops. Boys, it would seem, were meant to be active and warlike. And meanwhile, guess what? Girls were provided with dolls and miniature cooking utensils, since girls were to be domestic and caring, and were not to mess about with Kesha or anything like that. As young children, there probably was not a vast amount of difference between what the well-heeled and the unhealed did, though the toys they played with might have been better and more numerous, the posher you were, I assume. Equally, it's rather unlikely that they played together. The gentry, for example, were not given to mixing on equal terms with their social inferiors, and that in all probability applied to their children to boot. There were plenty of other indoor games for both children and grown-ups. The sources mentioned dice, something called tables, and something called quack. Tables appears to be backgammon, essentially, a game which pretty much saved me when I was at college gambling and consistently losing to my mate at poker, and then managing to win it all back at backgammon. It was always far too wild. It's a numbers game, just a numbers game. But anyway, that's tables for you. Quack was a game played on a checkers board. Not quite sure of the rules, but it looks as though it was probably something like drafts. Playing cards also appeared at this time in England. The first documentary evidence comes in an Act of Parliament in Edward IV's reign, and then there's a reference in one of the Paston letters. Elizabeth of York, wife of Henry VII, also obviously liked cards because of the mensch of her card debts in the accounts. No one can really be sure exactly where cards came from, but the generally accepted view is that in the 1300s, the Mamelukes of Egypt are the source, since they have the same four-suit structure. There's earliest evidence of cards in France in the 14th century, but it was Germany that went for mass production early in the 15th. So, I know what you're sitting there asking yourselves. Why are our suits named spades, hearts, diamonds and clubs? What's that all about? What card games did everyone play? And why am I wasting my life listening to this tripe and not doing something more productive with my life? On the first question, there are theories, gentle listeners, many theories. The Mamelukes had polo sticks, coins, swords and cups for their suits, so we didn't get our suits from there then. One theory is that the hearts denote the church, diamonds denote the arrows from which torturous connection you get lordly vassals. Clubs represented husbandmen through the yet more torturous connection of the trefoil and the clover. And then spades represent the points of the lances of knights. Sounds like utter tripe to me. Or, suits stood for the four estates of men, military, peasantry, clergy, aristocracy. But then, since medieval folk always talked about three estates of men, that sounds like tripe to boot, with the onions added. Finally, Maybe it's all down to the Germans. Since they were the first mass producers of cards, maybe it's them that laid all of this down. Now, the Germans went with rustic shapes. Hearts, bells, leaves and acorns. And so maybe in some way these shapes translated to spades, hearts, diamonds, clubs. Doesn't sound like a great theory either. I should have stuck with... Nobody knows where the suits come from. And left it at that. On to your second question... Nobody really knows about games in the 15th century, it's far too early, but it's quite clear that there's a lot of gambling connected cards as far as adults were concerned, which is, of course, 
heartily criticised by the medieval fun suckers at the time. On to your third question. Well, how rude. Cards seem to have been pretty universal, but chess was a game that seems to have been more limited to the gentry. The chess set itself was a bit more pricey than other games might be one reason for that. But educationists loved chess because they thought it made you quick of wit and they also liked the representation of society in knight and bishop and pawn and so on. So, one of Caxton's earliest books was on how to play chess, published in 1474, would you believe? The same outdoor games were played by both adults and children. And I should, of course, start with the greatest game invented by humankind. I speak, of course, of cricket. A game of endless variety of the individual and the team, of one-on-one, team against team. A game so glorious that it is possible to play for five days and still end up in a draw. Anyway, that's enough of that. Cricket is a long way in the future, but we have its mother in stoolball in medieval times. Now, this is not a game for the gong collectors. It's really very similar to cricket, with two wickets, two teams, both scoring runs. There's a completely unsubstantiated rumour that it originates in the 1330s in Sussex, where milkmaids were supposed to use their milking stools as wickets. Then, the vicar of Winkfield, around 1330, fulminates against bat and ball games in the churchyard in general. And then, finally, in 1450, there's a written reference specifically to stoolball. Nowadays, stoolball does exist. There is an association. It is a game now largely played by women. Really, there are all manner of games. It makes you realise that while we kind of assume, or I kind of assumed, that the Victorians and the 19th century in general made up all our modern games, it's really not true. They simply made up rules and standardised them. Medieval society, from peasant to king, had a whole bunch of games they played. So there's kales. This is the medieval form of skittles. Different from nine or ten pin because the skittles are lined up in a single row and you don't have to wear silly shoes and there's nowhere to buy chicken in a basket. There was bowls and something close to it called cloche, which is sort of like croquet by the sound of things since you appear to be trying to hit the balls. Logats. A complicated sounding name for a game in the medieval times, but I'm tempted to say that it's just log at since the game involved chucking sticks at wooden pins, though sometimes stones were clearly used, since there's a coroner's report about a poor guard killed by such a stone. Handball was around and unformed. It could very well be just played in the street, but the wall was beginning to make its appearance in the game. There began to emerge a tradition, despite cries of fury from the church, to play the game against the north wall of the churchyard, where children and criminals were buried but there are early forms of hockey, more like hurling and that sort of thing. And of course there's football, which hasn't yet had all the gentility and rules and organisation put around it. So many have called it folk football, but whatever you call it, your modern footballer would probably last five minutes. It was chaos. Played often village against village, so we're talking of local pride as well as the thrill of competition. The villagers would assemble, as many on each side as you liked, no thought of trying to even things up. At the end of each village, a marker was set, and then a pig was found and his bladder borrowed. The idea then was to get the pig's bladder to your opposing marker. From such simple rules, chaos and pain resulted. Basically, anything went, but normal rules against manslaughter or murder did apply. 
Another version of football was camp ball, an East Anglian version, which sounds a lot closer to modern footy, because it had a field set aside for it specifically, and it had goals at each end and all that sort of thing. There's an odd contradiction in the way that officialdom viewed the game of football. On the one hand, the game was considered socially acceptable enough to have in a heraldic sign. On the other hand, kings kept trying to rub it out and fine people for paying it, until eventually they gave up in despair. But one of the reasons they tried to ban these games could have been the distraction they made from the official national pastime, which was, of course, archery. The famous statute of 1512 specifies that every boy between the age of 7 and 17 should be given a bow and two shafts and taught to shoot. But actually, this was the standard practice long before that. Certainly in the 15th century, visitors noted that English boys were trained from their earliest youth. Also, although boys were required to shoot, it was perfectly acceptable and common for girls and women to shoot as well, and indeed for them to hunt. So like games and cards, archery was something shared by all groups and ages in society. But hunting, now, hunting was different. And hunting was anything but shared. Hunting was the most popular pastime for the better off. And in fact, it was one of those clearest activities that bound gentry and nobility together, men and women. While the lower orders might make their living from it or might simply bitterly resent the restrictions they suffered from living in somewhere like a royal forest. Hunting was an elite sport, basically, only doable in restricted places. Hunting was in itself its own subculture, with advice books, rules, different types of hunting, vast organisation and money poured into it. It was the sport of kings. Hunting was important for the nobility and gentry, both as a pastime, but also socially. As I've said, when you were in the country, politically without Wi-Fi, there was naff all to do. Hunting was therefore a major way of filling the year. It was a privilege. Not everyone was able to do it. And so, as I say, it had its own set of rules and signals and symbols that gave a physical evidence of your status. So here's a quote from a poem called Tristram. Wherefore, as me seemeth, all gentlemen that bear old arms ought of right to honour Sir Tristram for the goodly terms that gentlemen have and use in hunting, and shall do unto the day of doom, that thereby in a manner all men of worship may discover a gentleman from a yeoman and a yeoman from a villain. Hunting also had a military purpose, of course. For the class that was supposed to excel in war, it gave a way for old and young to practice military skills, archery, riding, physical dexterity and all that sort of thing, as well as killing things, of course. The long and short, therefore, is that all sorts of games figured highly in the medieval world. The rules might have been different or indeed non-existent, but actually, given that I find it absolutely impossible to find enough people who want to play cards, to my constant pain and distress, I suspect, actually, they were better off than I am with my Wi-Fi. Now then, a while ago, we had the revelation that I'd like to be a sheep. This came about because I was fired with enthusiasm in reading about English wool and all that kind of thing. So, I was further fired with enthusiasm to go and find out about more livestock of the Middle Ages. 
In this, more specifically related to cattle, but also other things, I have been very much helped by Stephen. So this is a joint segment, as it were, and thank you, Stephen. And as you'll all appreciate, the insights are all Stephen's, and the inaccuracy and inanities are all mine. Sadly, the first thing we found out was that the idea of breeds is a reasonably modern idea. Back in the 15th century, you just had cattle, pigs, goats, sheep, and so on. Or, when it came to cattle, you had cattle from somewhere, which had some characteristics, maybe. And in that, I guess we can see the very beginnings of the idea of the defined breed. All of this does not mean to say, you'll be sad to hear, there aren't lots of genuinely fascinating facts that we have to impart to you all about cows and all that sort of thing, so settle back. The first thing is that medieval cows were substantially smaller than your modern cow, a result probably of modern breeding. When I was a lad, it seemed that Frisian cows had taken over the whole of England, indeed the whole of the world. It may just be me, but I suspect there's a bit more variety now. But a Frisian, to take that as an example, stands at something like 150 centimetres high. The average height of a cow in medieval England would have been about 110 centimetres high, so very significantly shorter and smaller. We said there weren't formal breeds, but there were recognisable differences. So I think I mentioned the success of the family that imported Welsh cattle and sold them into England. In all probability, this would have meant they imported the Celtic black cow, reared principally for beef. Steve tells me that there were other types, so the English highlands produced longhorn cattle, while the lowlands produced shorthorn cattle. Scotland produced two types of cattle, the Longhorn Highland cattle and the Lowland Galloway, the Galloway being basically the Highland version, polled. And that, I think I'm correct in saying, means that its horns had been bred out of it, i.e. if you were polled. Things I'm learning. With the English shorthorn cattle, it gets a little more interesting. There does seem to be regional variations, which again probably led eventually to breeds. Plus, of course... While we now tend to think of cattle as either for beef or for milk, cows would also then have been used very much as a draught animal. And as a general rule, it appears to be that the large cows used as oxen for draught work were descendants of the types brought over by the Romans, and the smaller ones that were bred for beef were generally Viking imports. Good golly, Miss Molly, hoody elbow. So, the Welsh and Scottish cattle represented Viking imports. For Roman imports, we have cattle such as the Sussex Shorthorn found all over southern England as a draught ox, from the time of the Doomsday Book at least. And also the Devon Red, the Lincoln Red, both of which were relatively large and had been bred with Norse breeds the Vikings brought with them. The Norfolk Red was then a small hardy beef cow, so, in common with pretty much everything in medieval England, everything had its regional flavour. Meanwhile, the French brought more than fire, death, destruction and berets with them, with the conquest. They also bought some cattle from the Channel Islands. Now, given they were French, they were, of course, much smaller and much feebler. Ha <laughs> ha! Also more sensitive, romantic and emotionally intelligent. Back to the cattle, however. The Channel Island cattle seemed to have been bred for dairy, such as the Jersey cow. Now, when I was a lad, I seemed to remember a milk called Gold Top, which was milk from a Jersey cow, more creamy apparently. Not sure what happened to that, seems to have gone. But anyway, 
It's probably because the French brought with them the Alderney cow and the Guernsey cow. Not sure when the jersey arrived. And then one final curiosity, which is the British white or park white cattle. So named for the Chillingham Park in Northumberland, where a herd has been kept. Now they are fabled to be miniature versions of the now extinct Auroch, the great granddaddy of all cows. Sadly, turns out that's a myth, but they are pretty much wild and have been kept from interbreeding with any other cattle since 1220 AD. So nip in if you're near Chillingham Park. Then I turned my attention to pigs, where I was significantly less successful than Steve had been cow-wise. I have to admit also, by the way, that I have a soft spot for pigs as well as sheep. Pigs are handy beasts, and also I have a pub near me with pigs in the beer garden, which without wanting to sound like a 12-year-old is super cool. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Now, the thing about pigs, apparently, is that they are friendly beasts insofar as interbreed relations are concerned. Wild pigs, feral pigs, domesticated pigs live together holding trotters across the frontiers. Something basically funny about the word trotter, isn't there? Not sure why. Anyway, this friendliness actually means it's rather difficult to tell where the pigs have come from. They clearly at some stage have come from wild boar. But there is a fundamental and passionate debate about where the European pig came from, is it a domesticated European wild boar, or is it something imported from the Near East? I have to say, I think the debate is probably only passionate after seven or eight pints of ale or glasses of wine. Up to that point, I'm not actually sure that anyone really cares, but hey, I could be wrong. As far as we know, though, it appears that the English pigwigging was traditionally dark brown, coarsely bristled, with erect ears, pretty much like a boar then. It seems that the modern Tamworth pig is the closest we get in modern pigs to the medieval pig, which of course led me to remember the Tamworth too and spend a happy half an hour walking down memory lane with Butch and Sundance and the utter and delightful daftness of the great British public when faced with an animal story. For those of you outside England or those of you who had a life, the Tamworth too were a couple of pigs who escaped on their way to the abattoir and survived for a few weeks on the run, leading to an international media frenzy while the world tried to track them down and who were eventually were rewarded with a life in a rare breed centre dying at the grand old ages of 13 and 14. So there you go. And anyway, I digress. So I met a pig farmer once at a party. It was, by and large, a conversation which was not going well. I had tried my most successful conversational gambits, unlocked the files on some of my best and rarest witty anecdotes, and nothing seemed to work. Until, of course, I reverted to the time-honoured approach of just asking the guy to tell me about what he did. And it was not until several hours later that I managed to escape by jabbing a butter knife in my leg and calling the ambulance. I exaggerate, of course, for effect. But anyway, one thing 
that stuck in my mind from the conversation as clearly as the butter knife in my leg was that apparently the pig is the best animal at converting food into meat in terms of speed. Which is part of the reason why in 13th and 14th century England in particular, the pig was a critical component of the rural economy. And then for another thing, your pig is not a fussy eater. Weak in the table manor department, it has to be said, which would have disappointed my granny, but definitely an omnivore and easy to please. Which is handy. And then again, the pig converted an otherwise unproductive woodland resource in acorns and beech mast. In fact, the word mast comes from the German to fatten. Pigs, therefore, were only semi-domesticated. We tend to see piggies these days in fields with tin huts or vast fat things in styes. But back then, there was a cigarette paper between the pig and the wild boar. The pig foraged in the woodland, wild and free. And so, ladies and gentlemen, I give you the noble pig. Well, the joy handy pig, anyway. Noble might be a step too far. How many more animals can I cover? How's about horses? Contrary to the pig, with whom I have a close and loving relationship, me and horses have never seen eye to eye. I don't trust them. But I also found that horse breeds were not a thing in the Middle Ages. Once again, it was more practical about what they could do. You might have regional variations, such as a Spanish horse and Arabian blood was prized, but what you needed to know was what the beast was to be used for. So, there were a number of categories. Destriers, coursers, rounces, palfrey, sumpter and stopped. The destrier was the king of the horsey world as far as the knight was concerned. Fifteen hands high or larger, heavy and powerful, bred for war, explosive over short distances, bit like myself. Next rung down would be the courser. Still a smart horse, say 14.2 hands, so on the barrier between the modern horse and the pony. The courser was still a notable horse, which might be used as a destrier by the more penniless knight, or used by off-duty knights in Civvy Street or on the hunt. Then much cheaper than a courser was a rouncey, and now we're in pony territory, and basically your average commoner garden, horse, nag, that sort of thing. The palfrey, on the other hand, the palfrey was a riding horse and could also be a performance horse. You were looking for a smooth gait, good-looking horse with a good personality and if you found it, you'd charge a lot of money, as much as a destre for a good one. And then finally, the sumpter was a term for pack horses and stot for a draught horse. And that brings us as night follows the day to the great horse versus ox debate. Back in the early 60s, that's 1960s by the way, there was a bright sort of cove called Lynn White who wrote a seminal book on the economics of the Middle Ages. Lynn electrified and horrified the historical world with his talk of stirrups and heavy ploughs and three-field crop rotation, the kind of topics almost impossible to stop talking about on a Saturday night out in the town. One of his contentions, though, was one I have mentioned before that the invention of the padded horse collar transformed the ability of horses to pull the plough, and that their greater speed was beginning to see off the oxen and transform productivity in ploughing. Now, a historian likes a good argument, so Lynn didn't get an easy ride. <laughs> but it brings us to the question, horse or ox, ox or horse? 
Well, nowadays, folks aren't so black and white about it all. The evidence seems to be that, yes, the horse was quicker. And yes, more prevalent than it used to be. But no, the horse in no way had replaced the ox by our period. It was, if you like, horses for courses. Ha <laughs> ha! The horse could plough and was quicker. The ox could only do two-thirds of the work of a horse in the same time. But equally, the ox was stronger. It cost one quarter of the cost of a horse. It could deal with the heavier plough and heavier soil, and it was cheaper. Plus, it had one other massive advantage. Pope Gregory III in 732 banned horse meat on the Christian table. Now, everyone ignored this in most places, but as we found out through the EU, the English are a compliant lot, and so we carefully obeyed the instruction. But the ox, now the ox, could be eaten with a clear conscience. The long and short of all of this was that for pulling carts and so on, the horse had taken over from the ox by now. But on the farm, the ox was there to stay for a long while yet. Big cheer for the ox. Horses may leave me cold, but chickens and I have almost as good a relationship as the pig, despite the vast horde of rats that inevitably seems to come with them. Anyway, much as I love chickens, and they are very, very funny animals, I don't have a lot to relay, except here's one fab, fab fact. Every chicken is descended from the Indonesian red jungle fowl. Now, how's about that for fact of the decade? Chickens in the Middle Ages would all be free-range and largely left to forage for themselves and also be smaller than the highly bred animals we have today and consequently they produced smaller eggs. A bit like a pullet's egg. Which brings me to man's best friend. I speak, gentle listeners, of course, of the dog, the faithful hound. Once again, what they did seems to be the main divider. Though sadly, they didn't appear in the Middle Ages to have a specific name for a dog whose function it is to dribble gently on your knee while you're having supper. One of the big categories that did exist, though, was inevitably hunting dogs. For hunting, you needed various types. So, one of those types were harriers and greyhounds. And those are dogs who hunt by sight. Now, the debate there is where they originated from and the conclusion appears to be that they originated in the Middle East and came back with the Crusaders. Then there were bloodhounds and limers, which seemed to be dogs that used scent for tracking, and those appear to have been homegrown in England. And then things called stealers, whose use I know not. Stealers may potentially be sneaky poachers dogs. What do you think? Answers on a postcard, or Facebook probably. And then you had dogs designed to locate games. So, pointers and spaniels. And, of course, setters, to add pure brainlessness and mindless enthusiasm to the mix. The other main category of dog, apart from hunting dogs, was farm dogs. Now, I have been educated by Stephen that there are distinctions in the type of farm dog. So your true shepherd dog, like a collie, works in sight of the flock or herd. They can see him whereas other farm dogs, such as dogs called tumblers, work from behind by nipping the odd bovine buttock to keep things moving along. Again, the things you learn. I am sure that all these dog owners, wherever they were, loved their hounds dearly. 
But Stephen pointed out to me that there were class divisions reflected in the doggy world. So, the dog on the medieval Clapham omnibus, if you like, was your terrier. Small and neat and flexible, good for ratting, the terrier probably made up the vast proportion of the medieval dog community. Whereas while the gentry had the entire gamut available to them, their true love was the hunting dog, the pastime of the nobility. There are some other categories, but we have some debate about their presence in England in the Middle Ages. So you might include guard dogs, mastiff and bulldogs, that sort of thing, for strength and even fighting. But since England was pretty clear of predators, there was little need of them. And then there's the pet category. Little dogs. Dogs as pets, essentially. Now, the big question there is, did they exist in such a practical society? Generally, it's thought that pets were a later invention. Lap dogs, that sort of thing. Those little spaniels beloved of those poncy jumped up enemy of the people cavaliers, that sort of thing. But in fact, my strong suspicion is that there were in fact medieval pets. So, if you go to my website, you can see a picture of Christine de Pizan writing away with what looks suspiciously like a waste of space type of animal by her chair. The Book of St Albans, a 15th century manuscript, talks of, quote, small ladies' puppies that carry away the fleas. That sounds like a pet to my ear. Plus, of course, there's the male practice anyway of pretending that their dogs were for some practical purpose as they scratch their ears and feed them leftover pork scratchings. Overall, dogs were, then as now, adored for their loyalty. Sometimes carvings of dogs are found on the tombs of their masters and mistresses. And listen to this 14th century bloke. A greyhound, mastiff or little dog, whether on the road or at table or in bed, always stays close to the person who gives him food and ignores all others being distant and shy with them. Even if far away, the dog always has his master in his heart. Even if his master whips or throws stones at the dog, the dog will still follow him, wagging his tail and lying down in front of his masters to placate him. The dog will follow the master through rivers, woods, thieves and battles. Now that's a man who understands the close doggy link between loyalty and a free sandwich. And that also bears a suspicion of petdom to me. I was going to ignore cats on the basis that cats generally ignore us unless there's something in it for them, but thought it worth noting that your medieval cat in Christendom, while clearly having a role as a catcher of mice and rats, was not a particularly well thought of beast. There's a strong connection with witchcraft and wizardry that made people nervous. Well, on the other hand, it was notable that cats were popular in the Muslim world, which, given that Muslim world at the time was cleaner than Christendom, would make sense, since your cat is a clean type of animal. One European pilgrim even wrote, They like cats, while we like dogs. And now I must stop. Though actually, there's one more thing that Stephen dug up in the research that we thought we should talk about, on the grounds that we found it jolly interesting, and therefore fully intend to bore you lot with it and that is Smithfield Market. Now, everyone knows, from the Queen of England to the Hounds of Hell, that Smithfield Market in London used to be a major meat market. I've always wondered, BTW, about Jack's scale there, a scale that starts with Elizabeth II at one end and ends with the Hounds of Hell at the other. 
I've always wondered what's in the middle of that scale. Any thoughts to thehistoryofengland.com. Anyway, fewer people know much about Smithfield's history. So Stephen and I are here to tell you all about it, just because. Just because it's there, sort of thing. As you all probably know, many of our English roads are based on the roads of the Romans, along with the nettles that they brought too. Once upon a time there were no nettles in England, how cool would that have been? Also, I found out a 15th century England would have been without lettuce. Can you imagine how great that would be? Words fail me. Anyway, we're talking of roads. Some of those roads led north to Eboricum, York, to God's own country, Yorkshire. When the Anglo-Saxons arrived, with the technological skills of a sausage, they gratefully accepted the gift of these well-laid-out roads. Together, some of these Roman roads became known as Erningastreiter, or Ermine Street. Until the 12th century, they were known also as the Old North Road. Old, because by the 12th century, the road was a mess. So they moved to a new route out of London, at least. I do like roads. Maybe because once I was a rep in that most noble of profession, sales. Us reps spend a lot of time talking about roads. Anyway, at the bottom of the Old North Road, outside the walls of London, was a green, grassy, level area known as Smooth Field. In 1174, a chronicler remarked, On a smooth field where every Friday there is celebrated rendezvous of fine horses to be sold. Basically, here was a handy place where people could meet and do some trading before you headed into London. And, of course, taking a herd of cattle into central London would present a logistical problem. The description Smooth Field got turned into a name, Smithfield. Smithfield was perfect as a place to meet up because it had access to water and grazing. So, as folks met, it seemed sensible to buy and sell stuff. And from that grew a market. The market was called West Smithfield because it was west of the city of London. East Smithfield was where they buried all those plague victims. And you'll see if you look at maps that the lanes that surrounded Smithfield reflect that this was a place to bring and buy and sell livestock. So, Cock Lane, Cow Lane, Chick Lane. Duck Lane and Goose Alley did used to exist but were lost during the Victorian remodelling. Smithfield became England's biggest market, and so it set the standard, the standard of quality and of price. Edward III gave it a charter as a market, and it was often visited by outsiders, paying each third animal by way of a toll, which seems outrageous. And by outsider, by the way, we mean anyone outside Middlesex. As a wide-open area, Smithfield was used for more than a market. It had summer fairs and tournaments. There were elm trees at Smithfields. How lovely. Sadly, for some reason, around the elms seemed an excellent place for executions. So, before Tyburn took over with its gruesome monopoly of public executions, Smithfield also had a role. So this is where William Wallace was executed, for example. It's also here where the wheels of the Peasants' Revolt came off with the murder of Watt Tyler. Somewhere around 1400, the gallows were taken to Tyburn, and by 1600, the elms were gone as well but Smithfield by that stage was established as the place to trade in livestock. So look, sorry about all of that, bit of a list of facts and that sort of thing. Next time we'll be back to politics and we can see how Edward IV copes with his second hack at kingship.
which only leaves it to me, ladies and gentlemen, to thank you all for your kind attention and to thank those of you who have donated, such as my faithful and most laudable monthly donators, Jubal, Matthew, Coolbreeze, Andrew, Dan and Eric, and also those generous souls who have donated this month. My Kit Plane, David, whoa, thanks David, very nice of you, Wayne, Gareth, H. Darby and John. So, good luck everyone and have a great week. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.